morning, we begin with the peace offering. Like we've done each week, we want to kind of walk through what this offering looked like. The particulars of the offering so that we sort of understand it. Giving our cultural context, our distance from this sort of thing. Uh, you know, No one's made these kinds of sacrifices in nearly 2,000 years, even those among the Jewish nation, because there's not been a temple for them to make these sorts of sacrifices. There are some... Rogue sects that have done some of this outside of temple reality within that 2000 year time frame. But on the whole, this is not normative, even for those who are still part of Jewish culture. And so this seems very foreign to us. So we need to walk through a little bit and take a look at what this offering looked like so that we can get a a sense and a feeling of what Christ is fulfilling on our behalf through this Offering, And so I want to start out by pointing out the similarities between this offering and the offering that we saw in chapter one, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, of the burnt offering. There's a lot of similarities between a burnt offering and the peace offering. And so I'm just going to kind of walk back through some of those. Have no fear. We won't go into all of the aggressive details about the slaughtering and the blood and the entrails and all that kind of stuff. Because if you want to hear how all that went down, just go to the website. Listen to the sermon from Leviticus chapter one. We talked about all that. There's a lot of similarities. So you're supposed to take this offering from the flock or from the herd. That's what you're supposed to do. This offering, like the burnt offering, is supposed to be without defect. There should not be anything faulty in this offering that you are bringing to the Lord for this particular thing. There is the process again of the one who's bringing the offering, laying their hand on the head of the offering. Remember, this is not a wild animal. This is a domesticated animal, an animal that was raised by this person. They, they were there involved in the birth of the animal, likely. They were there in the care and the tending of the animal. And they have selected this animal because it is without defect to bring for this particular sacrifice. And so there's this intimate reality of this transference that's taking place by laying their hand upon the head, almost an anointing type of reality. This offering, like the burnt offering, is slain at the doorway, at the entrance to the uh, place of worship. That's where it is. Now, again, so that there's no confusion, it is the one bringing the offering that slays the animal, not the priest. So they're owning their part in the sacrifice of the animal for participation in this offering. That's what they're doing. That's a theme throughout Leviticus. Is that the one who's bringing the offering is taking part in their need for the sacrifice by being the one to slay the animal. Someone is not doing it on their behalf. The priest then offers the blood by tossing it or sprinkling it on the altar on the sides. And then, of course, the fat and the entrails are burned up as an offering on the altar as a soothing aroma to the Lord. Now, the differences between this one and the burnt offering that we saw in chapter one, the burnt offering specifically stated that it was for atonement. That's the language that was used in chapter one. And we saw, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, that the idea of it being for atonement doesn't always mean this reconciliation for sin. Mostly that's what it means, but it doesn't always mean that. And it could mean one or the other in chapter one. The idea of this particular sacrifice being for atonement is not present in chapter three at all. That is not the reason why it's listed. And so that is absent. Another difference, and it's a unique difference, is that this offering does not have to be exclusively a male from among the flock of the herd. It could be male or female. It could be either of the animals. And one of the reasons for that is that this offering 
was likely offered more frequently than the burnt offering was. So just to kind of give a little insight into that, the, the peace offering was probably a more frequent offering given than the burnt offering was. Um, and we'll get into some of the reasons for that as we continue through the book of Leviticus, because there's another place where it discusses the giving of a peace offering a few chapters later. Um, the unique issue, though, that's given here, and I want to reread it again. It's the last verse of chapter three. The unique issue here is that you're not to eat any of the fat or the blood. This is one of the first prohibitive things given to us in um, the, the action of the priest in their consumption of part of the offering, because we find this out a little later in Leviticus. But these offerings, particularly these meat offerings that have been brought, we found out about it about the grain offering in chapter 2 last time. But these meat offerings that are being brought, to this point, it sounds like the whole thing's just burned up on the altar. We find out later that that's not the case, that there are consumable parts of the meat offerings that are brought that the priest gets to consume, just like they did with the grain offerings that were brought. There's certain parts of the bread that they could eat. Later, when we find out about the drink offerings, we find out there's certain aspects of the drink offerings that they could drink. And then we find out from these later on that there's certain parts of the meat offerings, the burnt offering, the peace offering that they could consume. And here we have one of the first listings of a prohibition of certain parts of these offerings that could not be eaten. They had to be either completely thrown away like the blood drained away or completely consumed in the fire on the altar like the fat. And so that is a part that cannot be consumed. That's unique. It's the first time that we're introduced to a restriction on the priest about consumption of an altar uh, offering up to this point. And so I just want us to kind of register that because it's very important for what we're going to see in a few minutes. Now, let's talk like we've been doing um, about the language and the meaning of the offering. And so there's a phrase that's used here that's, that's very unusual. It's the sacrifice of peace offering. You found that in, in chapter 3, verse 1. The sacrifice of peace offering. It's combining two unique words together. The word for peace offering is one word in the Hebrew language. The word for sacrifice is another independent word in the Hebrew language. And to this, to this point... It's understood that a sacrifice is being made. It hasn't been explicit about that. It's, hey, you're bringing an offering. You're going to slay the offering. You're going to do all these things with the offering. But it's just kind of understood that a sacrifice is being made. Here it's very explicitly stated that a sacrifice of a peace offering is being made. Now, why is that? Well, because the peace offering is incredibly unique in its purpose and For it to accomplish its purpose rightly, it has to be understood as sacrificial. It has to be understood as giving of yourself or giving beyond yourself, which is the notion of sacrifice. Sacrifice is, which again, as I mentioned a second ago, this offering was given much more frequently. And so it hit a little bit more than the burnt offering did. Certainly hit more than the Day of Atonement sacrifice did which was once a year. This one was done with greater frequency. Now, why is that? Well, the word translated peace offering here is from the same root word in Hebrew, and we've all heard it before. What's the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. There we go. We got some people that have been hanging around long enough, and they've heard it, and they know. Okay, so the word for peace in Hebrew 
carries over to a lot of other kinds of things, but it's essentially the word shalom. Now, you wouldn't pronounce peace offering that way because it's accented differently, but it's the same root form as the word shalom. That's what it is. And what is it then? What is that? What is shalom? We've, we've heard that, hey, with the peace of God, the shalom of God, and we all run around and we say that. We went to Bible camp, and that's like one of four Hebrew words that we know, and we're super excited about that. And so, but what is that? When we talk about that kind of peace, what connotation would that be carrying to the Hebrew people wandering in the desert, receiving this law for the first time from God, and how that would have carried through the nation of Israel from that inception of the peace offering until the building of the, t- uh, the temple and then the destruction of the temple and even into modern days? What, what's going on? And so... Uh, from Easton's Bible Dictionary, some of the greatest understanding that we can glean from uh, this idea of the, the shalom of God or the peace of God in a Hebrew context. What is the purpose of this kind of peace of God? Now, I'm taking for you about eight pages and condensing it into these three points. So you're welcome. Okay, so uh, first, this concept of the peace offering, the shalom offering, if you will, is a thanksgiving offering. So let's stay specific to the peace offering and then we'll move to the larger understanding of what shalom means generally in the Old Testament. So this specific peace offering is a thanksgiving offering expressive of gratitude for blessings received. And in this conversation and several other authors described it this way, it's Eucharistic in feel. It's very much like our communion. When we celebrate communion, and it's also known as the Eucharist, why? Because it's a thanksgiving celebration. We are thankful for a blessing that we have received. Now, what blessing are they receiving? Well, we'll get to that in a moment, what the actual peace is and what it means. But that's why they were doing this. Second, this offering was often given as a fulfillment of a vow. But it was also expressive of thanks for the benefits received from that vow. And so someone made a vow. Hey, this is what I'm going to do. Whatever kind of vow it may have been. And then at the end of the vow, at the fulfillment of the vow, there was usually some sort of blessing that they received because that vow was fulfilled. And they were thankful for having received the blessing. So again, this thankfulness. And then third, this peace offering was a free will offering that was spontaneously devoted to the Lord as a, a celebration of God's goodness and kindness. So... What does shalom, what does peace mean in the Old Testament? What what does it mean? So key points regarding peace in the Old Testament. Um, And again, another expanded reading from uh, a resource. But the the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible gives a lot of insight into peace uh, and what it meant in the Hebrew context. So first, peace in the Old Testament context holds a wide range of meanings. It doesn't just mean one thing. Like when we say peace... We normally immediately in our Western minds go to the absence of conflict. So, you know, we were having a hard time with Russia. Maybe that's too close to home right now. Um, We were having a hard time with China. No. I'm trying to think of a place that we're not having a hard time with right now. Um, Canada. Okay, so we're having a hard time with Canada. I'm not worried about those guys. Uh, So we're no offense to my Canadian friends. Um, 
And so, and so now we're not having a hard time with Canada. We are at peace with Canada. There's no conflict between the U.S. and Canada. There's no threat of war. We're getting along with each other. And our Western minds, that's what we think of when we think of peace. The absence of conflict. But peace, particularly in an Old Testament context, in a Hebrew mindset, had a way larger range of meaning than just the absence of conflict. So here are five things that peace often meant in the Hebrew context. This word shalom, this peace offering concept, could have meant any of these sorts of things. So first, peace could mean wholeness. It could mean that a thing is complete and the way that it should be. Now, we get a little uncomfortable, especially in in modern Western thinking, for somebody to start talking about peace in this way. And I'm not trying to go mystic on you, but this is very similar to the Middle Eastern and Far Eastern concept of what's known as inner peace, wholeness. I am at peace with myself. I have come to realize that I am the way that I ought to be. And I'm contented with living my life in that oughtness. Now, the reason why we struggle with that as Westerners is one, we kind of feel that it might be far Eastern hokiness, you know. Don't forget, this is way further east than we are when they wrote this. Just want to throw that out to you just to remind you of that. And then two, we also really struggle with this notion of inner peace or wholeness as a version of peace because we don't ever feel like we have it. We always tend to be in conflict with ourselves. I I don't feel like I reflect Christ the way I should. I don't feel like I'm the kind of husband I ought to be. I don't feel like I'm the kind of father I ought to be. I don't feel like I'm the kind of employee or employer that I ought to be. I don't feel like I'm the kind of friend that I ought to be. I don't feel like I'm the sort of church member that I ought to be. You fill in the blank of whatever it is. And usually we have a notion that we are falling short. We don't feel complete. We don't feel a sense of wholeness about ourselves. And there's some theological truth to that. If we look past Christ and we look to us, we feel an internal conflict rather than peace, rather than a sense of wholeness. But in the Old Testament, the notion was built into the word in many of the contexts in which it's used. By the way, the word for shalom, not the peace offering word, but the actual word for just peace is used several hundred times in the Old Testament. And so there's a lot of context That it can be ranged from the second notion that it has second definition. The second idea that it carries is the idea of health. Which is a really weird way to define the word peace. Like in my modern Western mindset, somebody asked me, hey, Philip, man, how you feeling? Man, I'm, you know, hadn't been sick, man. I'm avoiding the covid. I'm just at peace. No, you mean you're healthy. Mm. Sometimes it was the same concept in the Old Testament. This, this sense, because they understood even more intuitively than we often do, that health is a gift from God. And that for me to not be sick is because God in His providence has kept me from illness. And it's a demonstration Of God allowing me, go back to the first definition, to be whole and complete. Remember, the body is not to be broken in the right state with God. That's because of the abiding presence of sin in the world. 
And so when the body has those short temporal moments where it does not have anything wrong with it, it's a reflection of what the body ought to be all the time. The normal, hear me this morning, and this is going to bother everybody. The normal condition of the human body is not health. It's brokenness and sickness. Those few rare times where there's not something wrong with us, a headache, something with our eyes, something with our ears, something with our throat, something with our breathing, some, you name it. Man, why does my hip feel like that today? Why did my knee make that funny noise? Why did whatever it may be? Wow, I I was able to do this much work yesterday, but when today, when I tried to do it, I got really tired really fast. What's that about? The condition of the body in sin is not health. And so those few rare times where we experience the health in the Old Testament, Hebrew people understood this and they used the word peace this way meant I have health. There's a peacefulness that exists in my life. Third, the word also carried the connotation of security. This is a lot closer to our understanding of the word peace. When we think about peace, we think about safety from enemies. We think about security in our position and where we live and what's going on around us. And they also use that word in a similar way in the Old Testament. Fourth, the word carries with it the idea of well-being, not just health, but things in life generally going well. Which, by the way, the natural condition of sinful people is that things are not usually generally going well. There's usually something wrong. It might be small. It might be large. It might be somewhere on a scale in between. But there's something somewhere in our life, very rare, small pockets of moments in our lives where we look around and go, everything's exactly the way it should be. Like nobody's mad at anybody. Nobody lost the job. Everybody's doing what they're supposed to do. The kids are all well behaved. The husbands are all well behaved. We know the wives are always well behaved. The husbands are all well behaved. You know, nobody had to ask anybody to take the trash out. They just remembered to graciously take the trash out. The house is picked up. The neighbors aren't being the way that they are sometimes. It's like, like everything's just clicking right. And if you really scan your life, of those rare moments where everything's just the way it should be, you realize they're rare moments. Where there's just this well-being all around, all the time. And the Hebrew people understood that if my life is that way, if I look around and I'm healthy and everyone around me is healthy and I'm at peace with my neighbors and I'm at peace with myself and there's just a sense of general well-being, that is a gift from God called peace. They understood that. And finally, and this will really kind of boggle the mind a little bit, one of the definitions in the Old Testament of this word for peace is salvation. And that seems odd until we transfer, as we will hear in a moment more thoroughly, the New Testament concept of what we have received from God because of Christ, which it says explicitly in the New Testament, peace with God. Because, friends, there are pagans who are lost, who care nothing about the Lord, who occasionally experience those moments of well-being. But the one thing that's off is their relationship with the Lord. 
And it doesn't matter how great the rest of your life is going. If you're not at peace with God, none of that matters. And the Hebrew people understood that. And so these are the concepts. And so there's a wide range of contexts in which we find these concepts about the idea of peace. So the state of the individual, as we have mentioned, the relationship between people uh, from from one uh, human being to another, the relationship between nations, one nation to another, and then the chief one, the relationship of God and man. And so the key issue that we want to understand surrounding this notion of peace in the Old Testament is this. In the Old Testament, they understood peace as something that was not accomplished by human endeavor. Rather, it was a blessing of God. Peace is not something that the human would strive toward. And like get a checklist out and try to accomplish as part of a to-do list. They understood that peace, true, real, meaningful, lasting peace that accomplishes all of the things of wholeness and health and security and well-being and salvation was a gift and blessing from God. And as such... It was tied closely to their notion, their concept of covenant with God. God has come in covenant with us. He's declared us to be his covenant people. And he has created a way for us to reflect his glory in this world that will demonstrate this larger, fuller picture of what it means to have peace. Because it is part of God's blessing on us. And that's the reason why this peace offering was actually an offering of thanksgiving. I am thanking God, not because I have accomplished peace, but because God has granted peace. And that's exactly what happens at our table when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm not saying, I look, I have worked my way to peace with God. No, Christ has died for me. He has done this great thing on my behalf. And so I am thankful to God for the blessing of peace that I have because of the work of another. And that's what's built into this offering. And so on that, understanding that, let's make the transition to Jesus as our peace offering. Let's see this. Let's see the concept of peace as fulfilled in the New Testament. So what did Jesus come to do for us? And there's some verses that we can run to. There's some things that we can look at. First. Not predominant, but first in the relationship with the Old Testament concept of peace to the New Testament fulfillment of peace. Jesus has come to make us at peace With ourselves. That internal conflict that we experience. I don't feel like I'm good enough. I don't feel like I measure up. I feel like something's lacking. I don't I don't feel like I should be in the presence of God. I feel like I'm always just falling short constantly in my life. If you look to yourself You will always feel that way. 
But the scripture calls on us in salvation to cast our eyes away from our brokenness and to the wholeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called upon to view him as our righteousness, to view him as our completeness, to view him as our wholeness, to view him as the one who's now clothed us in his glory, seated us in heavenly places with him, the one that now has caused God to love us with the same love that he loves Christ as Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer. He has come to make us at peace with ourselves because we are great, because we're good, because we're glorious. No, because Christ is great and because Christ is good and because Christ is glorious and he has taken our stead. That's what he's done for us. And so now I can genuinely look at myself and be at peace, not because I see anything worthy in me, but because I see everything worthy in Christ, who is now my representative. Much like this peace offering was at the doorway of the tent of meeting. They were bringing this sacrifice. He said, God, I know I'm not at peace with you. I'm not at peace with me. I'm not at peace with my neighbor. I'm not at peace with any of the other nations. There's no peace to be found. Here is a sacrifice of peace. Something that's not me. That dies the death that I should die. That I might not be your enemy any longer, God but that you might count me your friend. So we're at peace with ourselves. Jesus not only has done this, but he's also come to make us at peace among those that we are with, the one another's. Jesus has come to make peace among us, especially those who are in the household of faith. Jesus has come to bring Unity. Unity, by the way, is one of the greatest things I've ever heard. I don't remember who said it, so I'll just rob it and claim it as my own. Unity is not uniformity. It doesn't mean that we're all the same. It doesn't mean we all think exactly the same way. It doesn't mean that we all necessarily worship exactly the same way. It doesn't necessarily mean that we view the world exactly the same way. It doesn't necessarily mean that everything lines up like we're automatronic robots and everybody's just exactly on the same page about everything. That is not unity. That's uniformity. Christ did not come into the world and die for us to make us uniform. He came into the world and he died for us that we might be unified. And there is one essential reality that we all are to be unified around, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and Christ Jesus has made us alive. And that trumps everything else. Jesus does not care about my politics Or your politics because they're both wrong. Oh, that I can see on the looks of faces that bothered a lot of people. Your politics are wrong. So are mine. Do you know how I know this? Because I still strive to live in a constitutional democracy. 
Do you know where I really live? In a theocracy where Jesus is king. It really doesn't matter what the world says about how they want to rule itself. Christ Jesus rules all. He just happened to bless me to live in a constitutional democracy instead of like, I don't know, Serbia. Amen. Thank you. At least somebody's been paying attention. Trust me, I'd rather be here than, you know, it's like 207 sovereign nations in the world. There's like two others I might would rather go to than the United States. Maybe if I had like if I had to. Really glad to be here. But at the end of the day, Jesus is king. Whether you live here or in China or in Kyrgyzstan or wherever other place that you want to land. Jesus is king. And the unifying reality is not our ethnicity. It's not our race. It's not our politics. It's not our gender. The unifying reality is I was in Adam and I was dead in my sin. And Christ has made me alive and transferred me from the kingdom of darkness into the excellencies of his beloved son. That's what God has done for me. And you know what that does? It tears down all the dividing walls between me and you that we might have. Your education, your politics, your language, your socioeconomic status. You know, all of that stuff goes wet. Why? Because none of that matters to King Jesus. Because he's King Jesus. And he made all that stuff. The stuff that we make really big deals and divisive about in our world. He guides the king's heart wherever he wants it to go. That's what it says. And so this peace offering that Jesus fulfills, Jesus has come not only to make us at peace with ourselves, but he's also come to make us have peace with one another, especially in the household of faith. And finally, and most importantly, the only way those work is that Jesus has come to provide us peace with God himself. I want you to flip with me quickly to Romans and then we'll, we'll be ready to close in a moment. But I want you to flip with me to Romans real quick. A few verses in Romans that we want to touch on. In Romans chapter five. In verse one. Therefore. Having been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Turn over a page or two, depending on how big your Bible is. Romans eight. Romans eight. Verse one, therefore. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. By the way, if you're not in Christ Jesus, you are in condemnation. Say, Philip, that's not seeker sensitive. Don't really care. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And what the law could not do. That's what we're studying in Leviticus right now. What the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh. They had to keep bringing peace 
offerings. There's a reason why it was one of the most abundant ones that they would give. Because they had to keep bringing it. Doing it one time was not enough. They had to keep bringing the burnt offerings. They had to keep bringing the grain offerings. They had to keep bringing the drink offerings. They had to keep having the Day of Atonement. And all the other things that we're going to run through in Leviticus. They had to keep... There's a reason why they created a funnel channel out of the temple to drain all the blood out. Because they kept coming with the sacrifices. Weak as it was in the flesh. God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We have peace in ourselves. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things that are flesh. And those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life. And he just stops. No. Life and what? Peace. Two more pages. Romans 12. Romans 12. And remember, this language in Romans 12.1, we saw at the beginning of our series and in chapter 1 of Leviticus, is the language of this offering that is used throughout the book of Leviticus. Therefore, I urge you, brethren... By the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then he talks about not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if you were to fast forward down toward the end of the chapter. Notice what it says. Verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In these three verses in Romans, Paul demonstrates to us, Paul shows to us that Christ Jesus has come to give us peace and three kinds of peace. Peace with God, peace with ourselves and peace with each other. Which is exactly what the picture of the peace offering was in Leviticus. Because it's how the Old Testament people understood the notion of peace. And then I want you to see finally this last reality of Jesus here in the peace offering. There is a prohibition of the consumption of the blood given in Leviticus chapter 3 verse 17. Remember as we've talked about already in the context of the Old Testament the blood is is indicated life. That's what the blood was. It was, it, was, it was life. Life was found in the blood. It was considered sacred and was to remain that way and was not to be consumed. I know a lot of times people try to put a spin on it and be like, well, you know, before they understood how, you know, sick you could get from eating stuff, you know, God tried to give them this secret knowledge about like, don't eat these kinds of things and don't eat undercooked food because he didn't want the Hebrew people running around getting sick all the time. I guarantee you that they were smart enough to know that when they cooked stuff a certain way and then they ate it and they got crazy sick, they're probably not going to cook it like that again going forward. God didn't have to give you a special insight into that. This is kind of common sense. And so that's not really what's going on with these, these, uh, um, uh, diet dietary restrictions that we're going to run into in the book of Leviticus, this being the first one. Why could they not consume the blood? Because it was considered sacred. It was set apart for God. 
and you do not consume the things that are set apart for God. That's for God, not for you. Just like they weren't supposed to eat in certain parts of the grain offering. They weren't supposed to eat parts of the meat offerings. There are certain parts of the drink offering they're not supposed to consume. Certain things were supposed to either run off or be burned up. They were not for the human. They were sacred and set apart for God. And blood had always been considered in the Old Testament context as that which held life. And life is sacred. I know that's a modern chant and mantra of the pro-life movement in America and we make cool signs and we go to rallies and we do all that stuff. But it runs way deeper than that. Life is a sacred thing that is set apart by God. What does it say in the Old Testament? He's the one who makes alive and he's the one who brings down to death. And so there's this sacredness. The blood was meant because it was sacred to consecrate the altar and the ground under the altar. Therefore, it was forbidden. Now, I want you to see what Jesus does. I want you to see what Jesus does, how he ratchets this way up in the New Testament. Jesus is always doing some wild stuff with the Old Testament concepts in his fulfillment in the New Testament. In the New Testament context, the blood is viewed as a perpetual drink offering. Think about for a moment the, the death of Jesus Christ. The physical blood of Christ ran down the altar of the cross into the ground below him. When they pierced his side to see if he was dead, water mixed with a little bit of blood came out. He had essentially been, as the sacrifice would have been in Leviticus, drained of his blood. The priest in the Old Testament context would have thrown that blood on the altar. The Lord Jesus Christ himself allowed blood to run down. His own altar, which was the cross, into that sacred ground beneath his feet. The place where everyone must come if they want to enter into the presence of God. The cross of Jesus Christ. And it covered this ground as a doorway of his tent. Jesus was constantly calling his own body uh, the temple. You destroy this temple and in three days, I'll build it back up again. And it says they didn't realize until after he had died and been raised, he was talking about the flesh of his own body. He was declaring his fulfillment of Leviticus at the cross. And now we do what the priests could never do. We consume his blood in the form of a drink offering, the cup of the table. You say, Philip, you're sounding like some people that are not Protestant. Well, Jesus himself said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no place in my kingdom. And that was one of the great arguments against Christianity in the first century. A bunch of cannibalists. They're eating some dude at their worship service. That's, it was a real argument. Like People were worried about I don't want to go to that church, man. There's a whole lot of reasons in America that people give why they don't want to go to church. Never heard anybody say, because they're eating a dude. Like, never. I've heard a lot of other reasons why people don't want to come to church. It's never been that. It's weirdos eating some guy and drinking his blood. Strange. That was a real first and second century argument against the church. 
Because there was this understanding of the consumption of Christ and his sacred blood. But now notice that it is not the ongoing sacrifice like it was in the Old Testament. This remembrance that we have in the drink offering of the Eucharistic table, thanking God for the peace that has been made between us and the Father by way of the Son and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. This remembrance is of a work that has been completed, a celebration of thanksgiving for peace that has already been supplied. Friend, hear me, if you're in Christ... You don't have to long for peace with God. You already have peace with God. If you are in Christ today, you don't have to long for peace with yourself. As a gracious gift of God and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, you already should have peace with yourself. Not because of you, but because of Christ. Friend, if you are in Christ today, you should not have to long for peace with your brothers and sisters. You already have peace with your brothers and sisters. It is a gift from God. Now, we could be misusing the gift. We could be neglecting the gift. We could be disregarding the gift. We could be living in rebellion against the gift. Certainly all these things are true. But friends, we need to get this notion out of our minds that somehow we have to strive and work and fight and claw to have real peace. Peace isn't something that we work for. Peace isn't something that we strive for. Peace is something that has been given to us by the one who always gives good and perfect gifts from above. Every promise is yes in Jesus. And the promise of this picture of the peace offering in the Old Testament is that we would have wholeness. We would have security, we would have salvation, we would have well-being, that we would be in a state of contentment between us and our God because God himself has reached out to us and given us the gift of peace. For the fruit of the Spirit, singular fruit, all aspects required, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness and self-control. And against these things, there is no what? Law. Friend, our friends in Moses' day would go and slit that animal's throat. They'd throw that blood on the altar and say, God, thank you that in this moment I have peace with you. And then... A week or two later, they'd feel that they didn't have peace and they'd come and they'd slit another animal's throat. And they'd throw that blood on the altar and they'd say, God, thank you that in this moment I have peace with you. Praise be to God that the one true Lamb of God has already been slain. 
And there's no more bringing of another offering or sacrifice to God. The ultimate sacrifice of peace has been brought before the Lord and has been slain and the blood has been shed and it has been poured out and it has made the ground sacred and holy. And God now looks at us and he says, you, I do not have enmity with you are not far off. You are not outside. I have peace with you and my peace. What did Jesus say? I give to you. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the peace that Christ gives. And in our moments of trial and conflict and struggle and suffering, thank you that that peace, as the New Testament says, surpasses all understanding. Thank you that Christ has made us at peace with the Father. He's made us at peace with ourselves. He's made us at peace with one another. And it is not through our working or through our effort or through our striving, but it is purely and simply and gloriously and graciously a gift from you. Bound up in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Father, forgive us. Forgive us. When we do not live in that peace. Help us by your grace and for your glory and for our good. To live in the gift of your peace today. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen.